For those of us that are going to stay in here, for those of us online, let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2 is where we will start this morning. This is week number three in this series, The Unbroken Song. What we're saying, what we mean when we say the unbroken song is the same good news of peace on earth and hope now possible through Jesus. That's what the angels sang, proclaimed to the shepherds the night that Jesus was born, more than 2,000 years ago. That same good news, that same proclamation of glory to God in the highest and peace to his people here on earth is just as true today as it was then. And so what we're doing is we're sort of taking these weeks one by one to look at the hope and look at the work that Jesus accomplished when he was born, when he came into this world. Now we're just doing this for four weeks. There are at least 30 things the Bible says that Jesus came for. At least 30 reasons that his birth is good news We just have four of them. So this is not by any means exhaustive. So each week we're just saying this, this is why Jesus came. The first week was Jesus came to bring peace. Last week we said that Jesus came to give his life away. And today we are going to read just two verses, Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And we're going to see that Jesus came to destroy death. Jesus came to destroy death. And so look in this great book of Hebrews in our Bibles and let's read two verses together, 14 and 15. Listen as I read these. Again, Hebrews starting at chapter 2, verse 14. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Would you join me in a word of prayer as we ask for God's help? Gracious God who has given us the true word, who has given us the Son that we might abide in him and who now sends the spirit to live in and indwell every believer in part that this word might be illuminated to us and we might understand more deeply and be transformed through the renewing of our minds. We pray for your guidance, your help, and your grace. May we see that through the cross, your son Jesus crushed death And may we now live each moment in newness of life with, yes, the hope of glory, but also freedom in this life. Speak to us, Spirit, we pray. Amen. So before we really dive into these verses, let me just tell you a little bit of my burden in saying that Jesus came to destroy death this morning. Now, that, that, that really gets me excited to say that Jesus came to destroy death. That's an exciting thing. And, and I hope you came ready this morning to hear a good word about that. 
But my burden, and if I don't just kind of share this next part, I don't want you to go home thinking that what Jesus did when he destroyed death was really great, but you won't, get able, you won't be able to take hold of that for quite a while. So what I don't want you doing is going home this morning and saying, that's great. When I die, which I hope isn't for a long, long, long time, it'll be really great that Jesus defeated death. And so we heard a good word this morning, and now I just wait for like 40, maybe 50 years, and then that'll kick in for me, that Jesus destroyed death. If that's all you hear, that just things are good when you die, I believe I will have failed you this morning. What I want you to hear and what I want you to go home saying is because Jesus has defeated sin, death, and the devil, I've been delivered out of bondage. You've been delivered out of bondage to all of those evils. And so now you are free and invited into abundant life with Jesus. And when, when you die, yes and amen to that, you get life with Jesus. But I also you also get to live now as one who draws near to God and know that he delights over you and his favor is for you today, in this life right now. That's my burden this morning. Hebrews is this deeply theological book. And sometimes good theology, it just, it just takes time to develop good theology. And what the, reader, what the writer is saying here, what we're reading in chapter 2, verse 14 the writer just sort of builds on and builds on and explains and works out and, and molds and crafts. And finally, it takes a chapter and a half, almost really two chapters, before he finally says, now this is the end of what I'm saying. This is the culmination of my argument, the seminal implication of what he says here, that Jesus came to destroy death, doesn't get paid off until all the way down in, in Hebrews 4.16. And he says, because of all this, this is what we get. It says, let us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews 4, 16. And that's it right there. Jesus defeated death. And now you can, through him, go right up to the throne of God. You can walk up to the throne of God, not anxiety-ridden, wondering if you're going to find disappointment and shame and pointing out your failure, receiving punishment, none of that. But knowing that you already have mercy. And when you need help, you will always find it in God, because he delights when you come and ask, and he is powerful to give grace and help when we need it. So when we say that Jesus came to destroy death, we don't just mean that when you die, it's good. We mean that life and the implications of that are worked out right now, and there's grace and there's good right now, because Jesus has destroyed death. And so in order to walk through saying that, let's just do this. 
First, we, we have to understand the predicament that we were once in or that apart from Christ we're still in. And we have to look at really its only solution, our only hope. And then we're just going to look at some ways to follow after and abide in our death-defeating Savior. So we're going to look at our predicament. We're going to look at the only hope we have. And then we're just going to look at some ways that we abide in our Savior who has destroyed death. So when we, when we read Hebrews 2.14, that part of the way Jesus defeated death was that he came in flesh and blood like we are flesh and blood. It brings us to just an important question for understanding why it is that Jesus had to be born and to die in the way that he did. We just simply ask why. This is kind of a, a modified, this Unbroken Song series, it's kind of a modified Advent or a Christmas series. And so let's just ask this question. Why did Jesus have to come in flesh and blood like you and I are in flesh and blood? And then the second part of that is, just how flesh and blood was he? Just exactly how flesh and bloody was Jesus? And so in order to understand these verses, we have to, we have to go all the way back to their origins. At least their origins is, as far as we are allowed to know. All good theology starts in Genesis 1 and then passes through Genesis 3. You can't do good theology without taking into account Genesis 1 and 3. So in Genesis 1, very beginning of the Bible, God creates everything, and the way that that chapter ends, so Genesis 1 goes through a lot of creation, and the way that the chapter ends is by God looking out over all that he had created and saying, this is all very good. So the period of creation ends with everything rightly ordered, with everything just as it should be. Genesis 2 comes. Genesis 2 is a little bit of a retelling of Genesis 1 with some different, more poetic emphases. And then Genesis 3 opens with the serpent. Those are the first words. The first words of Genesis 3 are, now the serpent was more crafty than any of the other creatures God had made. God made creatures in Genesis 1 and 2. And we know that calling the serpent crafty means he's not good. So where we left off at the end of creation, this is all very good. The very next thing we learn is there's something that's not good. In the second part of verse 1, we see just why. Why exactly isn't the serpent good? The first thing the serpent does, at least as we see it, is he twists the words of God and he's trying to trick Adam and Eve, the first man and the first woman, the only man and woman that are alive at this point. So we're going to do a lot of theology in like three verses right now. If you want to talk to me later, we can do this. The serpent is the devil or Satan. Devil means slanderer. Satan means accuser. There's a whole lot of theology packed into that, but that's what you need to know. The serpent is the devil or Satan. Our word, where we get the word devil, it's a word that means to slander. Slander, one who slanders, and Satan means one who accuses. In Genesis 3, he slanders God by implying that God is lying to Adam and Eve. 
Revelation 12, 9, all the way to the end of the Bible, calls Satan the deceiver of the whole world. And in Genesis 3, there are only two people to deceive. So he does what's, what he's really good at, and he deceives them. He convinces them to do the one thing, the only thing that God has commanded them not to do, not for their limitation, but their, for their protection. And he tells them that it's the one thing they need to do to become great. So what he does is he appeals to their pride, and it works. He says, if you want to be great like God, you have to just do this one thing. And God doesn't want you to do this because he knows that it'll make you great like him. He doesn't want that. So he appeals to their pride and their ego, and it works. So I, th- I told you there are three things that Jesus was born to defeat. We've already been introduced to one of them, the devil. Now we get a few small clues throughout Scripture of what happened. It's not much. We don't know much about this. But we have to take what we know of the devil... We have to learn a little bit about it, and then we have to realize that because we don't know much more, it's just not helpful or healthy for us to speculate a lot, and so we just have to conclude, this is what God wants us to know. This is what God has revealed to us. What we know is that some point prior to finishing, or prior to Genesis 3, but after finishing creation, Satan leads a rebellion against God. He takes some other of the angelic beings created to live in the presence and the glory of God and worship him with their entire existence, and he leads them away from God. But instead of crushing Satan then and there, instead of crushing these fallen angels at that point, which he absolutely could have done, it would have been easy for God to just end that instantaneously. Again, we just don't always know why, but for some reason, God allows Satan to roam to this day. All we know and all we can conclude for the reasons for that are some way, and for some reason in some way, it brings God the most glory to do it this way, to not crush him right away, to allow him a certain amount of work in the created world, and then at some point, in the future, at least as far as Genesis 3 is concerned, to destroy him. So Jesus was born to defeat the devil. That's the first thing we see in Genesis 3. It's the first thing we saw, one of the three things we see in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. The other things that he defeated are also introduced to us in Genesis 3. When Adam and Eve were pridefully enticed by the deception of Satan... They sin for the very first time, and ever since, sin has been a part of our world. Sin has always been a part of the world after, at and after this point. And as people made in the image of God, it's that way because Adam and Eve not only represented God in the world, they represented all the people who would come after them. So they stood there for us. So there's sin that enters the world, and the final thing that's introduced in Genesis 3 is death. There are other consequences of sin, but the biggest is death. For their rebellion, our rebellion, people die. So listen, if you're listening to this, and your reaction is, Adam and Eve sin, so I die, and your, your thing is, hey, that's not fair, 
Just because Adam and Eve sinned, the rest of us have to die. Like, that, that's not right. How is that just? If, if that's your question, how is that just? Here's how it's right and just. Let's just handle that really uh, small complaint really quick. Adam stood as a representative for all humanity. So when he sinned, we all bear that curse. But Adam's sin isn't the only sin that we bear. I sin and you sin, which means we all fall short of the holy righteousness of God. In other words, you do plenty on your own to deserve death. You need to only just look at a basic, basic list in the Bible. The most famous is the Ten Commandments. Just seeing lying violates the holiness of God. And so does jealousy. And so does spending our moments believing that we know better than God. So pride is at its root. It's the belief that you know better than God, the belief that you would make a better God of your own life. And, and every single one of us has behaved like that at times. We've all not liked the circumstance we're in and thought, I would have made a better decision for me here than you did God. So this is our predicament. This is where we're at, that we have followed the devil into sin, and we now deserve death. And from here, we either have two choices. The predicament they're in, you are left with two choices. You either try to lobby God on your own, and I can tell you right now, that's not going to turn out well for you. If you ask many people what God thinks of them, what they plan to tell God at the end of their life, they, they will likely reply by saying, well, I think I'll tell them that I was kind and I was, you know, generous. I, I tried to help people, you know, I, I, I tried to leave the world a little bit better place than when, than when I came into it. But that's not the right question to ask. What are you going to tell God when you die? God has already told us what he thinks of sin. And that's that it can't be tolerated in the presence of his glory. Even to think that we might be able to God, lobby God in some way successfully that's just more crafty work. The idea that some people are under the delusion that they might be able to lobby God successfully, that's another crafty work of the devil. Listen to Ephesians 5, 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. In other words, all people who disobey him, that's you, me, and everybody else in the room, and everybody else listening online. You can't plead your case before God. It's foolishness and folly to try. Instead, we must plead the case of Christ. And this is where we see Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 now coming into view. Hebrews 2, 14 again. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood. So all of us, we're, we're here in flesh and blood from Adam and Eve to me and you. We're all here in flesh and blood. And then it says, he himself likewise partook of the same things. In other words, Jesus became a human being. Theologically, I'm going to teach you a little theological word. It's called the hypostatic union. You don't need to know a lot of big theological words, but it helps if you do know them. The hypostatic union is the relationship of the humanity and the divinity of Jesus Christ. It means that in the virgin birth, God the Son, who is eternal and co-equal with God the Father and God the Spirit, humbled himself so that when he was born to his mother Mary, he was still God, but he was God in the flesh. And in verses like these, right here in Hebrews 2, these are the reasons that we don't believe that God was just some 
that, that, that Jesus was just like some God in like a fake skin suit, like a movie makeup type of thing where, where they made him, where, where he made, was made to look like a human, but really he was just kind of God with a suit on. And nor do we believe that he was something less than God because he is still the one who can deliver us. So in order to be as clear as we can with something that's very mysterious, we say in the hypostatic union that Jesus Christ was fully God and fully man. He's 100% of both. So he is God eternal, born in flesh from a woman. And you need to know that because there's one more thing that God says about sin and the devil in Genesis 3. So here in Hebrews 2.14, it says that through death, we might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. If you go back and you go, well, again, how does one in Hebrews 2 destroy the power of the devil, which is all the way back in Genesis 3.15, it starts there. Let me just read you one last promise from God in Genesis 3.15. This is part of the curse for his rebellion, for his deception, for the way that he accused and led astray Adam and Eve, Here is part of the serpent's punishment. God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. That means the one who comes from the woman shall bruise your head. And you, the serpent, you're going to bruise his heel. So when it says that the devil will bruise Jesus' heel, it means that the devil will feel in some small way like he has a chance in the fight. If you saw two people fight and one of them got a shot in on somebody's heel and the other one got a head shot in, it'd be very clear who won, right? Heels are not important to the body the way heads are. So Jesus will bruise the head of the serpent. This is thousands of years before he's born, but he's saying, God is saying, there will be one born of a woman who will strike your head and, in other words, destroy you. In John 3, 8, it says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says that through his death, Jesus canceled the record of our debt, nailing it to the cross, and he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. And the way that Jesus did this was by taking the main weapon that Satan wields and rendering it useless. If you wonder how on the cross does Jesus disarm the rulers and authorities, and put them to open shame, he does that by rendering the most important weapon, the most forcible weapon, the most useful weapon that Satan wields utterly useless. Now, it's a mixed metaphor. But it's not, picture this, it's not like Jesus kicks the gun out of Satan's hand. So Satan doesn't have a gun anymore. It's like Jesus says, go ahead and keep your gun It's useless. Fire as many bullets as you want because my people now have on bulletproof vests. 
Satan can accuse and accuse and accuse and accuse, but for the people of God, we say, no, I stand free of these accusations because Jesus Christ took on flesh and went to the cross. The decisive moment was the cross, and here's the the beautiful thing about reading this and talking about it now. We can read Hebrews, written almost 2,000 years ago, And for us, the cross was a long, long time ago. The beautiful thing about the cross in this context is it's done and over with. Jesus defeated sin by going to the cross, not as a sinner, but in the place of sinners, like we are. And he defeated death when he rose again on the third day, and he defeated the devil when he said that the only thing you can do, which is accuse people in a way that leads to their death, that doesn't work anymore. You can accuse all you want. But after Hebrews 2.14 and destruction, we get 2.15 and freedom. All who had been subject to lifelong slavery, slaves to sin, slaves to self-justification, slaves to self-pity, slaves to self-doubt, and slaves to death, because outside of Christ, that's our destiny. But now, not only do we not have to fear death, but we are delivered to glorious life and glorious hope and promise. Where once we were subject to the futility of our minds, following the course of this world, Ephesians 2 says, the prince of the power of the air, we've now been transferred to glorious light. And so for us who are in Christ, who've claimed the name of Christ, death has no victory over us, and sin no longer holds us. All the accusations, all the slander that the evil one might bring bounce off as though we're wearing an impenetrable vest. So let me talk about this freedom. Let let me talk about a couple of things that we can expect and to do with this freedom. So those who've been delivered from sin, from death, from the devil... Through Christ, let me just, I wrote down four of them. How do we live as those who have been, who have, are in Christ, who has defeated sin, the death, and, uh, sin, the death, and the, sin, death, and the devil? Number one, don't submit again to a yoke of slavery. We just read Hebrews 2, 15. We used to be subject to lifelong slavery. Now we're free. Don't submit to another yoke of slavery. Galatians 5.1 says that you've been set free for, so that you can live in freedom, not so that you can go find something else to enslave yourselves with. And here's what this looks like. Sadly, we, we see so many Christians who would claim freedom in Christ, but they put so many rules around that. Or they fear the freedom of others. They judge the freedom of others. If you are spending more of your time denouncing the choices or preferences or passions of other Christians than celebrating the defeat of death and the hope of life in Jesus, you have just found a new brand of slavery to sign up for. Spend your time delighting in the freedom of that God gifts to Christians. Not looking for more rules to submit and not looking for more things to enslave yourself to. 
live in freedom and celebrate the freedom that God gives others. Number two, love the light. People who are no longer slaves to sin love the light. 1 John 1, 7 says that Jesus was in the light, so we should walk with him in the light. Ephesians 5, 8 says that we once walked as children of darkness, but now we have the light of the Lord. So this is twofold. First of all, things that are light are things that please and honor God. I'm not encouraging you to remove yourself from the world entirely. That's not actually biblical. But work to develop a heart for the things that God loves and take seriously how much of your time and your attention and your gaze you give to the things that he doesn't love. Another way of saying all of this is is to take seriously growth in holiness. Being a man or a woman who understands that you've been set apart by God. You've been freed from the things that would enslave other people and make your greatest delights in the things that please him. In other words, ask, is what, what, what I am doing right now, what I am thinking right now, what I am engaged in right now, what I'm about to do, will this please the Lord? Or am I submitting again to a yoke of slavery? Am I giving it something else mastery over what I'm allowing myself to think or see or do? Third thing that people who have been delivered from sin, the death, and the devil should do. Be soft. I could say this a few ways. I could say be humble, be gentle, be full of grace. My point here is sin, the death, and the devil are scary, feisty, deceptive foes. Ephesians says we don't fight against flesh and blood. Those are easy things to fight. We can see flesh and blood. We can fight against that. Often, we fight against things that we can't see. So when people are struggling, spend more time praying for them, helping them, coming alongside them than you do rendering judgments or telling them what their problem is. There was a time when these three masters, this is humility. Folks, for everybody in the room, whether it was early in your life, whether you came to Christ in the middle of your life, whether it's toward the end of your life, there was a time when every single person in here was ensnared by these three masters. When your sin was your delight, when death was your destiny, when the devil was who you were following, So there was a time when all of us were under those things. So have patience and be tender toward people who are still under them or who have more recently come out from under their lordship. And again, just a warning here, none of us is much better than another. And so be gracious, be full of grace with one another. Don't submit to a yoke of slavery. Love the light. Be soft. Here's the last one. Be bold. Romans 8, 37 through 39, so good. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Christian, 
when you have been delivered from the domain of darkness to the domain of glorious light, you remain there forever. And nothing, not, not even Satan, can pull you back. So be bold with God. Proclaim his excellencies. Proclaim his greatness. Trust in his might. Call people to faith in him. Respond in faith when and where he leads. Boldness can be a defining mark of Christians. Because all the things that we might be afraid of, principalities and rulers, nothing. Death, where's the sting of that? It's nowhere because of Christ. Sin, no longer my master, I'm free. What happens when I die? I get the blood of Jesus and I get grace. Where do I go when I have need? I get to go to the throne of the Father and know that he's going to welcome me and he's going to be happy that I've come. So be bold with Christ, with God. Trust him and proclaim his glory before other people. Be bold. Be gentle. Be soft. Love holiness and don't look for another way to enslave yourself. Live in the freedom that Christ has called you to. For freedom, you have been free. Do not again submit to a yoke of slavery. You have been delivered from sin, the death, and the devil, and nothing can separate you from that deliverance in your life in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, all glory and honor to you, for we have been set free. May we live in newness of life and in the freedom that reflects our salvation and our deliverance. Amen.